Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Here at the Business Creators Radio, we come to you from the field. In fact, right now, we are tuning in from our sumptuous office on my Las Vegas balcony here in the hottest city in America. Sometimes you'll hear me tune in from the balcony, sometimes from a cigar shop, sometimes from a coffee shop, sometimes from a hotel lobby, sometimes from a park. Where are you when you have those mastermind conversations where it's you and another person and you get inspired by what the other says, you're sharing stories, you're sharing case studies, and one person speaking, the other says, oh, because it's inspiring them. And between the two of you, you create ideas and solutions to the world's problems that are far greater and a far higher total than the sum of your individual efforts would have been. That's what we do here at Business Creators Radio Show. So imagine you're in that spot. Maybe you hear a bird chirping in the background. Maybe you hear a car zooming by. Maybe occasionally you hear a little bit of muffled conversation because these are the places you'll be when these things happen. Just have with you your pad of paper and two pens to capture those aha moments that will naturally arise as you get inspired by what you hear. Today, we're going to speak about genius and why everyone is a genius. To share with us today, because I'm very curious about this and where he's going with it, his name is Mike Zeller. Awesome guy. He's a business architect and entrepreneur mentor who helps professionals find their zone of genius and rewire the subconscious to fuel momentum toward their life's purpose. He has mentored over 300 high-level entrepreneurs from all over the world, helping add tens of millions of revenue to his clients. As an entrepreneur himself, Mike has founded or partnered in over 20 ventures across multiple industries, including technology, real estate, digital marketing, and more. His website is www.mikezeller.com, and I encourage you to check that out after you finish streaming today's interview, or you can look at it while you're listening so that you can begin to discover more faster. And with that, Mike Zeller, come on in. The weather's fine. (laughs) Excited to be here, Adam. Love your energy, my man, and cannot wait to dive in and talk about one of my favorite subjects, human genius and human potential. Before we do that, what we like to do here at Business Creators Radio, I just read off your official bio, and believe me, it's so impressive. I'm not sure I'm worthy to be here, and this is my show. So before we start (laughs) speaking about this zone of genius and your take on the 80-20 principle and the 80% advantage and some other genius routines you're going to share with us. Oh, I have my pad of paper and two pens out too. Not only am I the host, I'm the number one student. Tell us a bit about your journey and your words and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. 
Yeah, great question, Adam. So, yeah, I journeyed uh, initially as a uh, entrepreneur of a different sort. I was a uh, I was part of some uh, different campus ministries and uh, church plants, and so I was I was all about creating uh, spiritual communities that uh, lifted people up, uh-huh. and uh, that's what brought me to Nashville. And then along the way, though, I got involved in real estate, and I learned one of my other mentors had said, "Hey." Like, you know, most most of America's wealthiest people made their millions in real estate. Yep. And so I started studying real estate, bought some investment properties soon enough. I'm a real estate investor and eventually uh, I sell real estate actively. I, I was selling real estate actively for 15 years. I've retired from that. But uh, along the way, I also got bored. I, I had this longing. I had this gnawing in my soul and my spirit that, hey, if all I do the rest of my life is sell real estate and invest in real estate, my soul would die. And I remember wow. I was like, you know what? I got I to gotta shake it up. And I went to Buenos Aires, Argentina uh, for a six-week mini sabbatical inspired by the four-hour work week. While I'm down there, uh, I fell in love with a, a girl from France initially. and then, But I also came up with three new business ideas um, because I was like, hey, you know what? I'm really good at uh, being a sales engine, but what if I could design a sales engine? of a business. And so I came back, started some different ventures, one, a socially minded car dealership. And uh, four or five years later, I started having a lot of entrepreneurs reach out for coaching and mentorship and ask, hey, Mike, can we grab lunch? Can we grab a coffee? Can we uh, talk for 30 minutes? And I was like, and I would just do it for free for like six months and then realized no one was taking action and I was pouring my heart out. And then uh, uh, I realized, you know what? I got to, I got to charge for the wisdom uh, because it's, cost me a thousand dollars an hour to to coach someone for free so right making a thousand bucks somewhere else and uh, eventually i started coaching one-on-one mainly uh executives and co-founders and uh over time uh i started creating masterminds and more and now i have my first book out as well fantastic so let's start we're going to define a principle and then we're going to delve into. You gave us a lot of points you want to cover. So this may go kind of quickly for our listeners. So remember to subscribe. You may have to listen to this one twice. First of all, define for us why you feel everyone is a genius. Well, if you look at the multiple intelligences, uh, Howard Gardner defined uh, that there were seven different types of intelligence. And and most of us are not as clued in about our, our genius. And if you look at uh, they did a study in 1968, and they tested four- and five-year-olds on human creativity. And guess what? 98% of four- and five-year-olds scored on the genius level of creativity. Then they tested NASA astronauts, astronauts in the space age. And, the, you know, we had this, the, moon, the race to the moon at that time. They tested NASA astronauts on only about 2% of NASA astronauts scored on the genius level of creativity. What they found is, as they did more studies, they found that people believed in their genius less and less as they got older. Yet at the beginning, early in a person's life, they had genius levels of creativity and potential. So, but the the challenge is, is, is you look at the school system, you look at uh, a lot of the industrial age paradigms in the working world, Basically, we were uh, we've been almost mechanized into uh, an assembly line of workers. Because if you look at the 1920s, when much of the modern school system was uh, designed, it was built to provide 
people to factories, to provide people for service-based jobs, to provide people for, you know, laborers and other things. And, and, or we need some medical, we need some doctors, we need some attorneys, we need some accountants. Well, you know what? We're capable of far more, but uh, I feel like our genius is, is sucked out of us as we get older. And my passion is to reinvigorate and help people realize their deepest areas of potential. And what, what happens, I see over and over and over from someone could be uh, a teenager to a 65-year-old. Hey, when you get clued in on your, on your deepest talents, your deepest weaknesses, and you focus more on your talents, um, and you find your unique life experiences, your key relationships, your values and passions, and you intersect all that, you get all the clues gathered on one table, guess what? The patterns start popping like popcorn. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned the educational system. It's our educational system here in the United States anyway, does have roots in the Prussian system from the 19th Mm -hmm. century, which was designed to create servants from the state. People who were people who were smart enough to run the machines, but not smart enough and definitely cowed enough so that they wouldn't question them. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I um, when I was in elementary school and going into secondary school, I was classified as gifted. Not quite genius, but gifted based on my IQ scores. (laughs) And when I think about the totality of the experience retrospectively, I was celebrated as a genius unless I had any thoughts or made any expressions that questioned what I was being told. And at that moment, all of a sudden, I was a nerd and a dork and I needed to put down the books and start living life. Wow. Uh-huh. That's crazy. And I'm not the only person who's had that similar experience Their Their intelligence was celebrated until they reached that point where they went beyond knowing how to manage the machine to question the machine. And all of a sudden, no, 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 no. Stop it with the books already, man. You, you, you study too much. You read too much. Really? Yeah, it's so transparent. And the people who say this stuff themselves are, in many cases, in patterns that they don't recognize they're in because it's been handed down from generation to generation. Now, you say something about the zone of genius. So let's just dive right in here and tell us about this zone of genius, because I think it brings a lot of what we're going to be discussing subsequently together. Yeah, so I feel like uh, just in my research, I've mentored uh, about 300 plus high-level entrepreneurs, executives um, on a more intimate level, and then thousands on a bigger, broader level. And what I've found is if you gather the clues, and here's the four main quadrants of clues, and what, what made me realize that there's a lot more clues than most people realize is I would take one personality test, and I, I, some people say, oh, yeah, I've taken a personality test, and they don't remember what was on it, they don't remember the details, and then it might have had a few things that were contradictory. So they might say, oh, that doesn't work or it's not fully accurate. Well, you know, you got to recognize that there's going to be store scores and you're going to be on a spectrum, not all the way in one score typically. But I took a Myers-Briggs in college, age 20. And I was like, wow, this is really spot on. About 80, 90 percent of it was really spot on. And I was like, wow, that's really good. Then later on, I took the disk profile. And I was like, wow. This adds another layer. This is really good too. Then I took Strengths Finder. I was like, wow, that's amazing. So many unique strengths. And then I'm like, all right, 
I got some info from the strings finder, got some info from the disk profile, I got some info from uh-huh. Myers-Briggs, and then I took the wealth dynamics. I was like, whoa, this shows me my natural pathway to build wealth, and this shows me why I lost money over here, why I made some mistakes over here. And, and then I took the Colby index and Enneagram and other tests and spiritual gifts tests and all these things. Well, what I realized is, is that's one key measurement is your unique talents. And the, the problem that most people have is our clues are scattered about our life. You got some clues over there. You got some clues over here. You got some clues there. You got some clues that you forgot about. And my goal is to get regather all the clues, get them all on one table. And, and so the five different personality tests all measure something different. It's not like if you go to a car dealership and they say, hey, uh, yeah, you know, you're thinking about buying this one-year-old uh, pre-owned Lexus, and they show you the report of the inspection. Well, if they only measured the tire pressure, but they didn't check the engine, they didn't check this, they didn't check the brakes, you'd be like, hey, what the heck? You, you, you aren't measuring all the data. Well, that's why you need to do multiple tests because they give you different data points. So first quadrant, your unique talents. You want to gather all the data you can about your strengths, your weaknesses, your natural proclivities, because it tells you what to manage, tells you what to focus on, tells you where you're going to shine and where you're going to, where you're going to flop or where you're going to flourish. Then the second right. thing is your key relationships. This is something that most people don't think about. Like there's probably people in your life, Adam, that you absolutely just love being around. Name, name one person that you just, you're excited to hang out with him or her Every time you get to, I'm not going to say her name, but she knows who she is. All right. All right. Yeah. Cool. All right. And then there's probably a couple people in your life that it's uh, maybe they're a friend from a previous stage in life where you're like, man, ah, dude, how do I let this person go gently? Because I don't really, they don't bring me life. They don't inspire me. They don't expand me. They don't challenge me. They don't, I don't have fun with them. Uh, this person uh, probably also knows who he is. And he sometimes tune in, so I won't say his name either. But believe, <laughs> right. believe, believe me, I have the two avatars vision side by side as I look out into the vista of the trees sprouting from the park of the, the from that park that's across from my sumptuous Las Vegas balcony. So I am with you, Mike. Keep going. <laughs> All right. And then the second thing about your key relationships is like, where do you have a natural hotbed of relationships? Like just people that you're naturally drawn to and you have a cluster. Like when I did, when I first started reflecting on this and started saying, all right, there's some clues in my relationships. I had all these real estate uh, investors and real estate people as friends because I was in the real estate industry, but I didn't, honestly, I didn't love being around them. I I like people in real estate that are up to something in addition to real estate. But then, but then I also had this unusual assortment for someone who hadn't spoken publicly and who hadn't written a book, had all these best-selling authors as friends and all these speakers and thought leaders and entrepreneurs that were just on bigger stages as friends. And I was like, why do I have the, but I love being around these people. So then, so that gives you some clues, All right, Those, yeah. there's something there, right? Third thing, you're defining life experiences. Your messes become your message, your yes. breakdowns become your breakthroughs. One of my favorite phrases, although I although I freight word a little bit differently, I say I say right before right before the breakthrough comes the breakdown. So when mm-hmm. you're breaking down, let it burn, baby. 
And if you need to burn through it faster, uh, to paraphrase that line from the movie Sense of a Woman, take a Mm. fucking flamethrower this place. Just burn (laughs) it, go through it, because within that singeing heat is where the profound lessons will be that will bring you from breakdown to breakthrough where you build stronger, more powerful, and more ready to take on every opportunity that life is going to powerfully and authentically send your way than you were beforehand. So good. So good. Oh, sorry, I had, I had to interject there, but oh my yeah. God, that is one of my, that is one of my trans phrases. I love it. Yeah. Well, and what, what happens is, is our lives, each of our lives, like when I, when I have my clients or anyone doing a genius day or a genius workshop or going through my course or whatever, or reading my book, I have them go through a deep inventory of the timeline of their relate of their life. And here's what I mean. You think of a, uh, because like Steve Jobs says, you can connect the dots looking backwards, uh, but you, but you can't connect them looking forwards. Well, I believe if you look backwards at the dots and the moments of breakthroughs, breakdowns, the divine whispers, the whispers uh-huh. in your soul where you were like really alive, uh huh, and you just felt like something stirring. Like I was I was coaching a twenty uh, one year old yesterday, sitting down with her, and she's. She wasn't sure what her passions were. And I was like, well, what, what did you have like when you were a kid? What did you have an insatiable curiosity about? What did you, what did you have like, oh, there were some sparks and some like creativity just flowed. And she's, oh, when I would write poetry. And then she's in car, the automotive industry right now. And yeah. I was like, ah, all right. So there's something there. Just we'll come back to that. And so you look at like Theodore Roosevelt. One of my favorite examples, right? Most people don't know, but his, at age 22, okay? And like, now we know in his teenage years that he was a weakling. He, was, he grew up a weakling. He battled asthma. So yes. asthma in the 1800s, big deal, right? Uh-huh. And he's like, I'm going to overcome it. And he overcomes it by training outside, weightlifting, working out, uh, riding horses. Like he just battles through that and falls in love with nature. And nature was his obstacle, but eventually it became his friend. 22 years old, fairly newly married, birth of his first daughter. His wife dies after giving birth. 24 hours later, his mom dies after uh, in the same house, literally the same house. So he loses the two most important women in his life at the time, hands off his daughter to his aunt to take care of her and runs off to South Dakota to grieve. And he just lives in the wilderness and hunts and lives on prairies, hunting bison and bear and things like that for six months. And he grieves, but then he comes back, comes back, eventually gets back into politics. uh, And he fights against corruption his whole life. Guess what his dad did fought against corruption. He watched his dad, die of cancer because he was so stressed fighting against the corruption in New York city. So anyway, uh, becomes police chief, in New York city F- cleans up the, the police department cleans up the corruption in New York city, eventually becomes governor again, works on cleaning up corruption. Eventually he's elected as vice president because they think, Hey, we'll put him in vice president and he can't do anything too radical. Bingo. Bingo. Cause back in that day, to quote John Nance Garner, who also held the office, a uh, couple steps after Theodore Roosevelt, the uh, the vice presidency wasn't warm a, worth a bucket of warm piss. 
Yeah, hey, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you what Vice <laughs> President Garner said. It wasn't. I mean, we didn't have the imperial vice presidencies, the powerful vice presidencies, the transformational vice presidencies back in those days. The vice presidency was uh, a place where you went to basically die career-wise. Because how many vice presidents can you really name that served before the beginning of the 20th century? Yeah, most, most, mostly, mostly the ones who later became presidents one way or the other. And it was the same thing, actually, 60 years later with with Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, they the Kennedys owed him a debt because him bringing in Texas helped make John F. Kennedy president. But they did mm-hmm. not want to deal with that guy. So they persuaded him to take the vice presidency slot because they needed him to win the election. But they didn't want to deal with him. And that made it convenient for them to sideline him. Exactly. And when he was vice president, yep. they basically they gave him a bunch of basically bullshit tasks to do to keep him busy. And when they really needed him to go away, they would send him on goodwill tours. Mm-hmm. In the case of Theodore yep. Roosevelt, they stuck him in the vice presidency because then he couldn't mess with the machine. I've studied a lot about Theodore Roosevelt. So you're really you're really tapping into something that I'm really mm. passionate about. Love it. Love our yeah. shared appreciation about old Teddy. Yeah. And then what and then what's he do? Do you know what he does when he's in office at uh uh as president when the the president dies is the shortest term ever of a president? Not you know quite. All right. So William Henry does, Harrison had the shortest term, but William McKinley uh, was not in there very long for a second term before he got assassinated. Ah, uh, okay. Well, corrected. But one of the shortest terms. So yes. <laughs> I'm glad I know that. So I don't keep quoting that uh, incorrectly. Um <laughs> uh, so two major things happen that he ends up being becoming known for. First, he breaks up monopolies and the corruption and just over the the monopolies of his era. We think like Standard Oil. At one point, Standard Oil's GDP was equivalent, almost equivalent to the U.S. economy. Yes, massive. Like you know, if we that would mean Apple would be about. 20, 30 times bigger than it is today, even though it's the only company in the world that's over $2 trillion in valuation. Right, right. So anyway, so he breaks up these monopolies, has the courage and the gumption to take that on. Secondly, he preserves more national parks than any other president before him or after him, and maybe more than almost any president mm-hmm. Uh, combined, like all the other presidents combined. I don't know the exact data on that, but I know like he he's the guy, he's the reason we have Yellowstone Park. He's the reason that we have a very, very high percentage of most of our parks. Yeah. And, and, if, and if you looked, so I'd say all that to say, hey, we've all got these clues littered throughout our life. There's our passions, our purpose, our genius shows up. If we know what to look for, most of us have an untrained eye. Uh-huh. And so that's my passion is help everyone. Like I have, you know, I've worked one of my clients. She's, she had 80,000 employees as a CEO of a branch yeah. of the federal government. She's like, Mike, before we even did our session, she's like, Mike, you gave me one of the biggest breakthroughs of my career. Just from some of the prep work I had her sure. do. So then the last Last of the four quadrants is your values and passions. What do you stand for? What do you stand against? And this is like the last filter. And then what what are your values? Uh, what are your passions? What are you naturally curious about? What do you always long to understand? I've always, 
been obsessed with human potential. So leadership, sales, human psychology, peak performance, flow state, genius. These are my obsessions and this is what I want to help. Before I die, I want to help over a million people find their deepest area of genius. I love it. Okay. I got to spend just one more minute on Theodore Roosevelt. You've seriously yeah. got me excited here. Now, some of our listeners may already know the first of the two facts, but the second one may be a bit of a surprise to them. For, fun fact number one, in 1912, when he was running as the candidate of the, the Progressive Party, uh, which at the time was a very strong third party, he was shot in an assassination attempt when he was getting up to give a speech. And while he was bleeding, he gave the speech. <laughs> what saved his life is he had a copy of the speech in his pocket. And the, and the way it was folded up was so thick, it stopped the bullet from doing more than a superficial penetration. So, yeah, he had a good bleeder going on. But outside of that, he wasn't seriously hurt. The other wow. thing is the other thing, and I'm not getting political with this because I'm a big, you know, if you read my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. I make the distinction between facts and truth. So I'm going to focus on facts here. Some folks in our discourse got really, 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 you know, feely to the point like, oh my God, what is going to happen to our country when President Donald Trump made comments about judges who rolled in ways he didn't like? All right. Mm. Did you know that Theodore Roosevelt called for there to be citizen reviews of judicial rulings where basically common people could overturn judicial judicial decisions. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So uh in one case, in Trump's case, he was just bitching about something he didn't like and using that aspect of his personality, which was part of for for you know, whatever, however you view it, it was part of his attraction factor and also part of his attract and repel strategy. For Theodore Roosevelt, he was willing to take it like 15 steps further. Hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. If you look, that. if you look into Teddy, he was uh, it's not a mistake that he ended up being the candidate of the Progressive Party in 1912. This is somebody uh, I haven't really heard him described as a conservative or Republican. Yes, but Republican and Democrat have meant different things in different eras, just depending on the turning of the, the pages of the chapters. But yeah, and it, you know, breaking up monopolies, national parks. These are not the these are not the actions of a traditional conservative. But he wanted to go much, much further. Yeah, he's amazing. I love all that. Thanks yeah. for the breakdown. Sure. So, so now, uh, and I can't believe we're halfway through this already. This is amazing. Now, I'm going to kind of combine two questions here because I know that you have a time limit, and as do our listeners. Uh, you know, you want us to discuss the eighty twenty principle and how does that set people up to win at life. And then you also have a concept known as the 80% advantage and why that's important to somebody's success. So basically what I'm doing is I'm putting both questions together and asking you for both. Yeah, so the 80-20 principle. So we all know that the top 20% produces 80%. Pareto principle uh, that was popularized by the, 80, the book 80-20 principle by Richard Coe. Um, ironically, I got to connect with him and, and uh, have a private Zoom with him last year with his new book out, Unreasonable Success. But one of the cool things about the 80-20 principle is if you then apply that to your strengths, to your genius, if you get clarity, you know, clarity creates momentum. 
Clarity creates conviction. It's the first of the five C's. If you have greater clarity, you're going to lead with greater confidence. If you lead with greater confidence, you're going to show up with more courage. If you show up with more courage, guess what? You're going to speak and lead with more conviction and certainty, which means your commitment level is going to rise. But the clarity is the first of the five C's. So let's take that. I got greater clarity on my genius. I am a freaking badass at this. And I suck at this. So I'm going to uh-huh. stay over here and where I'm a badass. Like I'm amazing at ideating, uh, developing out concepts, architecting business ideas, marketing messages, et cetera, helping people get unstuck, rewiring their subconscious, all those things. Um, but I suck at finishing projects. I suck at uh, the tedious details. All right. So I don't want to manage finance. I don't want to manage administrative operations, et cetera. So All right, so I have clarity on some of those things. All right, now if I double down and and make sure that I focus, top 20% produces 80% of the results. My top 20% is those things, is my strengths, okay? I can undermine it by focusing too much energy on other things. So I want to look at your schedule. What, What I find with a lot of entrepreneurs, like I'm about to meet with another CEO that has multiple, he's almost an eight figure uh, business right now. He's a, has a film production studio and we're meeting here later this afternoon. And nice. when we looked at this, when we looked at this in his life, his schedule, his weekly schedule was filled with things that he wasn't necessarily good at, that didn't bring him life. And in fact, brought him death filled with all these administrative meetings that were not in his genius. And now we deleted those. Literally, he our first session, he started, he was depressed. And he is he didn't say this, but I picked it up, picked up on it. And I said, Hey, David, you're about to tear down your business, aren't you? Or you're looking for a way out. He's like, Yeah, how'd you know that? I'm like, I can tell. I just know. And that's because your schedule and your life, you're not living the 80-20 principle, and you're not living according to your strengths, and you're not living according to your genius. He's like, Mike, I just, and he had just come off a record year and he's about to have another record year. So then we started deleting things. Three weeks later, his enthusiasm, his excitement, his vision is all back. He doesn't need depression medicine anymore. He's excited about what he's building again. And so you look at the 80 20 principle and you also look at, all right, what are the most important things that typically there's usually a correlation between our strengths? and our passions, and our where we're most needed within our company. So like, there's no one in David's company that can take his company to 20 million that can get the vision that he can. So he needs space to think and create a visioneer. All right. So we worked on creating some space for that. And then we also look at, hey, where are his best hours? We each have three to four hours, a week, uh, three to four hours a day of peak emotional energy. So if my best hours are from 8 to 12 in the morning, which a lot of people, that's roughly their best hours, then if I'm doing low-level tasks that are not in that top 20% for me, then I'm squandering. I'm just pissing on my future. I'm just pissing on my company. I'm pissing on the potential. Instead of saying, you know what? Those best hours go to my most valuable, most needle-moving, biggest needle-mover uh, activities and responsibilities and projects. And so that's, yes. that's how I think through all that. Tap, okay. Tying it into your genius and the 80, 20, and I can hit on the 80% advantage too in a sec. Yeah. And you, and you, uh, and you touched on a few things. I'm going to bang through this very quickly. Uh, I had a few 
observations and a few ahas of my own. Number one, why is the Business Creators Radio Show an audio-only show? You know, I could give you a lot of reasons, but the fact is I just don't want to do video. Uh, I, I don't want to deal with studios. I like my laptop lifestyle. And, hey, I've got followers who tune into every episode. This gets me clients. I don't have to change for anybody. So, yeah, I've heard all about how video is more engaging. And I also know that the word podcast literally refers back to iPods, which were audio. So video to me is actually a bastardization. When, when I was in MBA school, I took a course where the gist of it was analyzing Harvard Business Review, or excuse me, Harvard Business School case studies. And one of the case studies, when we were having the discussion in class about it, the professors, it was taught by two professors, they're saying, no, that's not quite it. No, that's not quite it. That's the wrong answer. And finally, one of them blurted out, did any of you think to ask the business owner she even wanted to be in this business? Never leave a stone mm. unturned. So that jumped out of me when you mentioned the guy felt like he was ready to tear his business down. Activity versus action. He was sitting in a lot of meetings that made him seem productive because, yeah, he's chairing the meetings or he's in the meetings. He's contributing, contributing, contributing. So he looks like he's in charge. He looks like he's leading. He looks like he's busy, but it's actually just sapping his soul, which then goes mm-hmm. to which then goes to uh, the you know, meetings. I believe that meetings when they go out of their way to attempt to be inclusive, actually cause people to feel left out. In my teachings on meetings, I believe that there are four standard participants in your meeting. I mean, it can be different depending on the layout, but I believe that generally you're going to find these four types. You're going to have the facilitator or leader, or maybe that's two people. Then you're going to have the primary contributors. These are the people who represent departments, projects, and uh, they're typically the ones who have reports. Then along with the participants, you're going to have the third group who are the seconds. That's the other person who attends with the participant. Their job is mostly to observe and be their paired participants, second set of eyes and second set of ears, and to catch the other stuff in the room that the participant's going to miss while they're participating. They're also there to verify facts if the participant calls on them. They're there to serve as a debriefing partner for the participant before and after the meeting. And if the participant can't make it, that second is already identified as the other person who can represent that department or project so they can show up for the meeting, be the, be the acting participant for that particular interest and be recognized as such. And then you have the observers. These are the people who are counted in just to be in a loop or to have representation of certain interests or what have you. A lot of these folks um, either would rather not be in the meeting at all and feel like they're being dragged in and or they really do want to be there just because they want to hear from the horse's mouth and not through a third-party memo. The, the observers often don't want to be called upon. So when you go around the room and ask everybody their thoughts, these are the ones who are going to take 13 minutes to explain how they have nothing to add and to ask questions for which everybody already knows the answer because we were ingrained in, the, uh, in our educational system to earn participation points. Now, I myself, I'm not a hustler. I don't want to grind. I will do it when need be to push something through. In fact, I have a couple of projects with our podcast reach system. They're nearing completion. I'm going to be going to the grindstone and busting my ass on these. But it's not, it's not something I sustain. I'm not a hustler. I don't want to work hard. I also don't work standard hours. There's places I hang out, people I know. And sometimes it'll be Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening. And I'll have my laptop on, out. And they'll start with their pedestrian comments like, man, don't you have a life? What are you doing working on Saturday? Uh, you know, your clients see you working all the time. They're going to think they can just walk over you. And 
after about the 19th time this happened, I said, well, I'm actually, I'm not working. I'm actually on Tinder right now, scheduling a date with your wife. It's like, what? I said, okay. Now that I have your attention, <laughs> be aware that I don't do standard hours. I fulfill deadlines and commitments. And I go where my energy goes. Going back to what you said, Mike, when you did that coaching with that executive, he found that he had periods and times of brilliance. My period of time of brilliance basically comes up. If you want me to sum it up in a couple of sentences, I zig when others zag. So while everybody's doing their nine to five, I'm the one, if I need a dentist appointment, I'm not waiting in the lobby for an hour. I walk right in. Uh, if I want to go on a date in the afternoon, I go on a date in the afternoon and she and I don't have to wait on long lines to go where we want to go. If I want to screw around where everybody else is hustling, that's fine. And if I want to hustle while everybody else is screwing around, I'll take advantage of the fact that nobody except that dude's going to bother me. Mm. So, so it's a, yeah. So tell us about this 80% advantage. So, all right. We all have heard of GE and Six Sigma and with your MBA background, you're probably familiar with Jack Welch and some of their processes, right? Yeah. Well, so if you look at Six Sigma, which is the, the world's kind of platinum standard for manufacturing excellence, fewest parts per million that are defunct. All right. Because that means that's a big deal, right? If you got, if you got two or three percent, you got to make a million parts and you got two or three percent that are faulty. That means 20 or 30 parts are faulty. But if you get it down to 0.02 or whatever, like the, the best you could in that industry, now you're looking at two out of a million instead of 20 or 30 out of a million. Yes. And how did GE do it? How does GE get to that standard of excellence? Well, they do this process called the 80, what I call the 80% advantage, which is Instead of procrastinating on something, a project, you want to have, you have this dream. I want to write this book. I want to start this business. I want to, whatever. I want to get my, get myself in shape or whatever. Well, what you do in GE's process is, is they, their, their goal is not to get to hundred percent on each iteration. Their goal right. is to get to 80% improvement. How do I make 80% improvement? Because what happens is, your mind relaxes and says, you know what? Yeah, I can get to 80%. I'm not going to get it all figured out. And it's not going to be perfect, but I can make a significant improvement in stride. So I move it forward, 80% improved. And because it radically cuts down on the procrastination factor and the delay and the hemming and the hawing and the desire to get something perfect, which is never perfect anyhow, then I go 80% improvement. Then I say, all right, the next round of improvements, make it an, make it 80% better again. Boom, I can do that. Boom, now I'm at like 96%. Third round, another 80% improvement. Now I'm at 99.8% or whatever it is. Then you keep going and that's how you get things done a lot faster, but also actually end up with a lot higher uh, standard of excellence because You've, your goal, it's just a, you know, we got to master our minds. Our minds are fascinating, excuse me, are fascinatingly complex and capable. But most of us don't know how to navigate and manage or basically hijack our minds. Uh, like our, our, our mind uh, wants to avoid things that are confusing or things that are hard or those type yeah. of things. So. We got it. That's the best process I've ever seen. And uh, I initially learned it from uh, also from Dan Sullivan in his book, The 80% mm -hmm. Approach. And now I've 
kind of created my own version and I call it the rapid procrastination elimination formula. And the breakdown is actually in my book as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's interesting here is, you know, you mentioned things that are hard and things that are what have you is like, let's say somebody sends you a really long email, regardless of the yep. source of the email, even if it's your top paying clients, what is the likelihood you're going to stop right then and read it? Especially if it's really long, has long paragraphs and small fonts. No, not likely. None. In fact, there's a very good chance that since email accounts these days are more like news feeds, once it gets pushed down, you may never get to it. And they may say, hey, Mike, uh, I sent you an email. Did you get it? Did you respond? Uh, well, I discovered that when people would send me those types of emails, I, could, I just could not ever mentally focus on them. So I have different responses depending on what I think it's going to be. One of which is I simply respond and I say TLDR, which stands for too long, didn't read. And what, that's, <laughs> what that says to the end person is sum it up in a couple of sentences. Tell me what you need. Another, another is sometimes I would reply too long, phone call, schedule with Adam.com. Okay. Yeah. So I've done things like that. Now I've I learned like that. that sometimes I go you know, for client communications need to write long emails that have details. And when I do those, I use two I use two tactics. One of which is as I put a brief summary at the top. So if they can get the gist of it off my executive summary, which I call my TLDR statement, then that's good enough. But if they feel they need details or I'm already anticipating they're going to have a lot of questions about what I wrote because it may not exactly jive with their expectations, then underneath I'll say, okay, and now here's some significant detail. And I'll keep it to single sentence paragraphs, short bullet points, bolding to highlight key points, so that through skimmability, they can begin to see that some of those questions that would that when after they read my TLDR statement, it's like, oh, okay, well, okay, this is why. Okay, I get this now. Okay, I understand them. All right, I don't quite get this one, so I am gonna bring this one up again. I'm not on board with this, so I'm gonna have this out. But I help them save time, and I also help protect their energy levels. Because if I'm going to re- write that long email in the first place, you know, I might be putting a half hour into that. I want it to get read, and I don't want to have somebody look at my stuff and say, oh, he just sat my energy for the entire day. I'm actually tired thinking about the fact that he sent me an email that I'm not going to get around to reading. Love that. So good. So... um. Let's get into another thing, because now we want to begin harnessing this genius. And you mentioned something, we spoke about this in the green room, it's called a power positioning statement. So what is that? And how can someone create a power positioning statement that anchors their identity to their career? Good question. So the first part, the first part is the pre-work before the work. One of my favorite uh, favorite examples is David Ogilvy, the fa- famous advertiser. In his book Ogilvy on Advertising, tells the story of how he uh, they landed the Oldsmobile. I'm sorry, not the Oldsmobile. They probably worked with them too, but they landed the Rolls Royce marketing account nationally for America, right? So they land this account, and what they do is they do they they ended up uh, studying like connecting with engineers and learning all these things and studying uh, the Rolls Royces of that era. This is the 1960s. Right. And then they found this perfect phrase. And the perfect phrase was so quiet, 
that you can only only hear the clock the, or so quiet that you only hear the clock at 60 miles an hour wow it, now how did they get to that they gathered the data they gathered the information how did jim collins come up with hedgehog concept and first who then what and all those things that he wrote about in good to great what did he do he gathered the data first he went in with some hypotheses you know he didn't uh, but he had some uh, ideas of what might happen but he was open-minded enough to let the data speak for itself and let the patterns pop the patterns emerge so uh one of the things that I see over and over and over with my clients is we're all looking for more clarity. And if you look at it, uh, look at what happens when you gather all this data about your unique talents, your key relationships, your defining life experiences, and your values and passions. Now you start gathering this data and patterns start popping like popcorn, like Jim Collins and his good to great. The other thing that happens, D Hawk, D Hawk, the founder of Visa. We, most of us have never heard of D Hawk but most of us have had a Visa debit or credit card at one point or another. And Dave innovated the, the banking industry in a massive way in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And when he sold his equity in, in Visa and retired, he started writing for Harvard Business Review and other sites and wrote several books as well. And he found that the very best leaders did something that ordinary leaders didn't do. And you see this over and over and over in sports and entertainment in the corporate world, in the startup world, in the entrepreneur world, in the speaking world, the very best leaders, they focus more than 50% of their leadership energy on leading themselves, not leading others, not leading up, not leading down, not leading sideways, meaning they put themselves in more right positions. Because if you look, extraordinary results. Look at Apple when Steve Jobs is the CEO with Tim Cook and Joni Ive. What happens? Uh, extraordinary people, actually, really, you know, remarkable people in extraordinarily right positions, hitting the timing right, hitting the market right, hitting the offer right, which means the team is just aligned. It's a dream team. Okay, but how do I how do I start creating a dream team? I got to know what is the where is the role that I am indispensable, where I am one of the best in the world at. Well, I can't know it with a lot of precision and accuracy. It's kind of like, hey, if if uh, you know, if you go into a heart surgery, like you're, you're, you're having problems with your heart and skipping a beat, you sit down with a conversation with your heart surgeon, with his heart and your cardiologist, and he's like, yeah, 20 minutes in a conversation. It's like, yeah, at, from what I can tell from how you're talking about it, and our initial test, you probably need a triple bypass surgery. You know what? So let's let's go ahead and schedule it for tomorrow. Let's get you rock and rolling. You'd be like, heck no, you don't have enough information. I need, right. triple, I need more tests. I need more evaluation. Well, why do we do that for our, our purpose, our jobs, our whole careers? We don't gather enough information. But what happens if you do gather enough? For me, I know I'm one of the best in the world at architecting out business concepts, brand concepts, because uh, I'm strong in ideation. I connect the dots. I'm also one of the best in the world. My, my end goal right now is to establish myself as America's number one expert at helping high achievers find their deepest area of genius. Yeah. And I, I, there's no one 
I have yet to see anyone with a more complete process for helping people find their deepest area of genius than what I've created. And so I can own that. I can say no, America's number one expert at finding, helping high achievers find their deepest area of genius, right. their natural pathway to impact, fulfillment, and wealth. Right. You declared it. Like my friend James Malinchak, when he was starting out as a public speaker, he declared mm-hmm. himself America's hottest young speaker. And yep. because he kept saying it, people started believing it. And his career started to take off as a result. Mm-hmm. Plus, he connected with mentors who introduced him to opportunities that got his career moving. Think about uh, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest. Yeah. He kept repeating, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. So it created that frame that people look at him as the greatest. And they look at that. You And there, there's debate in the NBA over who actually is the GOAT. And there's this debate in the NFL who actually is the GOAT. And you see that the respective GOATs declare themselves to be such for the reason that they're creating that attractive energy. I am the greatest of all time. And it drives yeah. them. I mean, the, the reason why we have debates over who the GOAT is is because these GOATs actually do stuff that propel them toward being the greatest of all time in their respective in their respective sports. Now, exactly. also, I like to say your priorities are your priorities. It's, you know, you mentioned triple bypasses, cardiologists, and I like to tell the story of the late Jackie Gleason, who in 1978, when he was 62 years old, underwent six and a half hours of open heart surgery. Then a couple of years later, he was on 2020 being interviewed by Hugh Downs. And it's like, wait a minute, you're talking about your open heart surgery and you're holding a cigarette and a glass of whiskey. And when he's, and to paraphrase what he said is like, he said, look, the way I see it, the way I figure, if they fixed me, they fixed me. That means I can go on to continue to smoke, even though I think it's a stupid habit and I drink as much as I used to. Well, this goes to priorities. Now, some folks, they have heart trouble and they need a triple bypass or open heart surgery. It may mean to them, oh, shoot, I better change my lifestyle. I better drop that 100 pounds. I, uh, I should stop with the substances. I should live like a monk. Whereas uh, Jackie Gleason's approach was, I want to keep on living my life. What do we need to do to fix me here? Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that was probably the conversation he had with this cardiologist, which is, how soon can we get me on the table? How bad can we, how fast can we make these heart pains stop? Because I've got plays to do, movies to make, and parties to attend. Moment. So when you have that, you have that, and I'm going to bring this back to your point now uh, about the um, about the power positioning and the anchors, is it has to align, in my view, with that person's priorities, because their priorities are their priorities. It's not what their mastermind gangs up on them and tell them what their priority is supposed to be. It's not what their coach says it's supposed to be. It's not what some book tells them it's supposed to be. Their priorities are their priorities. Some people want to get rich so they can be lazy. Some people want to get rich so they can give back. Some people just want to be comfortable and have an easygoing life. Some people want to hustle and grind, make a million dollars and spend a million hours a week doing it. It's all about what your priorities are. And those priorities are subject to change at any given time based on a new decision. So good. Spot yeah. on, brother. Yeah. Love it. So as, we, so as we wrap up here, I know because you have about five minutes, I want to take two minutes for one question and then give you something at the very end. Uh, when it comes to everything you've covered here, I think there's a great question we can use this to help release people and give them something to think about as they begin to implement what you shared today. How can you release a worry that might be blocking you? First, you think that worry. This is counterintuitive. You think the worry. Think of it like 
uh, if you like, I'm happily married, but my wife, when she's upset with me, she doesn't want to hear a single thing I have to say about a solution or an idea or uh-huh. anything like that. She wants to be heard, understood, and appreciated, and that allows that energy to just dissipate that energy right. of frustration or whatever. So when you have a worry, it's almost like, uh, for me, it's almost like my frustrated wife. <laughs> yeah. She's like, hey, all right, pay attention to me. Pay attention mm-hmm. to me. I'm trying to warn you. It has a good intent. So you yeah. pay attention to that worry. What is its good intent? Uh-huh. Oh, you're trying to help me not make the same mistake I made two years ago in a similar situation. Okay. Right. right. I take the warning. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Now I'm going to release you from driving my life. Because uh-huh. another part of me, I like the alter ego. My, uh, I have a claim your power NLP process that's on my YouTube channel. And um, what I do, I've, I've literally helped thousands of leaders go through this. And what you do is you think that part of you and you name it. Like I have my, my alter ego is weak ass Willie. The second one, I name my more powerful self. So I have Magic Mike. I also have a Hollywood Mike Z that is the entertainer that's playful and fun. So I name both of those and then I call them forth and say, all right, Magic Mike, you're driving the car, my man. Take over. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm about to speak, uh, like I spoke this week, opening keynote, I was like, all right, Magic Mike, you're driving driving us forward. Let's go. So yes. that's, that's how I handle a worry. Exactly. I, I love it. Now, one of my worries is I acknowledge and embrace without feeling any need to change that my relationship with uncertainty isn't all that good. So let's say um, I'm in a dating situation or relationship situation or even a friendship situation, and I sense that there's a conflict there. And sometimes the warning of the conflict is when you can tell something's wrong and they say, oh, it's fine, or, well, I don't know. Now, I recognize at that point, if I try and push them on an answer that that could cause something worse. And I also know that I'm not going to be able to deal well with the uncertainty of wondering what the hell is going on. So one of the understandings I seek to make with people who I reach that level of relationship with is if we ever feel that way, then what we do is we set a time to speak about it. So if you were, so like, let's say it was a girlfriend and she said, Oh, well, everything's fine. Oh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'll say, okay, cool. Tell you what, why don't we speak? Um, uh, how about Thursday afternoon, say two o'clock? And she'll say, okay, well, that's cool. Now, what's unspoken there is I'm acknowledging that she needs time to process, to have feelings and to mm-hmm. have feelings about her feelings. I'm giving her the space to do that. And I'm also securing for myself the ability to say, okay, I'm not going to worry that she's about to dump me here. I'm just going to take this, put it in a box and set it aside, go about my life. And if ever I have those tinges, I just say Thursday, two o'clock. And she has her, she has her time to do what she needs to do. And I have the ability to go on with my life and not worry about the uncertainty because I have the certainty that Thursday at two o'clock, she's likely to come back to me with some answers in a framework through which we can work out whatever's on her mind. Mm -hmm. So good. Yeah. So for our listeners who may be uh, leaning on the edge of their seats here, uh, wanting to discover more, and I really encourage you to connect with Mike, Mike, uh, tell us. Your website is www.mikezeller.com. That that we know. We also know you have a book out, which I'm going to be buying myself. So just tell us a no, bit about just just tell us a bit about um, you know what you actually do to serve people, and when they reach out to you, how they do that, and what they can look forward to once they do. 
Yeah, so you can grab a free copy of my book at the uh, geniuswithinbook.com uh-huh. and you got to hit the www uh, yep. as well. But geniuswithinbook.com, grab a free copy, just cover shipping and handling. Um, additionally, I lead a variety of different masterminds and workshops around finding your genius, rewiring your money mindset and your relationship with uh, money. Um, and then I also have a couple different masterminds, one for seven to eight figure e-commerce entrepreneurs with my buddy, Colin Wayne. Uh, he's got a hundred million dollar e-com brand called Redline Steel. And then, uh, my, one of my favorite things is my symposium mastermind. It's my mastermind for six and seven, uh, figure, e- uh, thought leaders, meaning authors, speakers, coaches, uh, et cetera, consultants. And uh, so I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and have helped many of them double, triple, even 10x. I had one hairstylist that made a million dollars in her first year. Um, and she was a hairstylist up until uh, about halfway through the program. Um, and then uh, this past year, she ended up doing almost uh, $7 million in her coaching business. So Awesome. She, yeah. So I have her case study, Kristen Bosch. She's amazing. Um, and I have many other stories like that, but you can find me as well on Instagram, the Mike Zeller, YouTube, the Mike Zeller, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all the same, the Mike Zeller, and that's Z-E-L-L-E-R. And uh, I also have a six steps to finding your genius free guide. That's just a free downloadable PDF. That's pretty epic. Uh, you can text uh, 474747, text the word genius. You, as in the letter U, genius U to 47, 47, 47, and you'll get that free guide and a chance to grab my book as well. Okay, so. gotta, okay I got to go. I got to get my phone out and text that to you right away. So uh, uh, <laughs> again, right. thank you very much for that detailed um, outline. You have a lot of great things to offer. I'm picking up that book. I want to read uh, that book. Thanks, brother. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hook you up. And for all of our listeners, I just want to say for all of you, uh, Mike Zeller, thank you so much. It has been an honor. And believe me, in education, I do look forward to connecting with you again. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.